Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Friday, October 27th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg volunteer firefighters responded to a vehicle fire at 4.30 this morning. The fire was on Cornelius Road, about two miles south of town. When they arrived on the scene, Troy Tinas, the owner of the diesel truck, was trying to put out the blaze with a garden hose. His efforts were in vain, according to Dave Berg, spokesperson for the fire department. He says some water in the hose had frozen overnight. Firefighters were able to contain the blaze around 5 a.m., which is when one of the tires popped from the intense heat. Nearby residents reported hearing a loud bang at the time. Responding firefighters determined that the source of the blaze was a block heater connected to the truck's motor. Berg advises residents to follow the manufacturing guidelines for heaters and be vigilant about outdoor electrical connections, especially in wet weather. Altogether, 10 firefighters, two fire engines, as well as local police, responded to the fire. No injuries or additional structure fires were reported at the scene. The North Pacific Fishery Management Council meeting held in Anchorage in October was not just one meeting, it was three meetings. In addition to the council itself, there was a meeting of industry stakeholders called the Advisory Panel and a meeting of scientists called the Scientific and Statistical Committee, or SSC. This fall, the council tasked the SSC with reviewing a 120-page preliminary analysis of Bering Sea Chum Salmon Bycatch Management and providing input on the, quote, relative scientific uncertainty of management options, unquote. As Robert Woolsey reports, the Committee of University, State, and Federal Scientists found a few things that were relatively uncertain. At its October meeting, the North Pacific Fishery Management Council examined some potential management measures intended to reduce the amount of chum salmon caught by trawlers fishing for pollock in the Bering Sea. Many of those chum salmon, referred to as bycatch, may have been intercepted on their way to the Yukon, Kuskokwim, and other large river systems of western Alaska, where chum salmon populations have crashed. The Council believes broader forces may be at work in causing chum salmon declines. The preliminary analysis prepared by the Council's scientists states that the decline in chum salmon populations appear to be driven by warmer water temperatures in both the marine and freshwater environments. Scientific and Statistical Committee member Dr. Ian Stewart with the International Pacific Halibut Commission had reservations about relying too heavily on temperature data. I think we should really caution the council against uh, making too much of the very weak temperature relationship. Fisheries literature is littered with weak relationships that don't last. Um, And in fact, in this case, it's possibly even more challenging than that because not only is it potential for uh, change in the biological relationship, but the utility of this is going to be based not only on the biology, but also on the fishery behavior and response. And that's even less predictable than the biology, perhaps. The council is considering imposing caps on allowable bycatch, but hasn't determined what will trigger those caps. Dr. Jason Gasper with the National Marine Fisheries Service also had concerns about linking any proposed action to temperature. I particularly agree on being skeptical about the temperature data, and I just note that this is also a retrospective approach, and it appears the desire is to set a cap based on that assumed relationship with bycatch, but of course the environment's likely to continue to experience warming, so it's 
difficult to ascertain how that relationship would even hold into the future. Dr. Curry Cunningham at the University of Alaska Fairbanks favored an integrated approach that also considered the abundance of chum that actually returned to the rivers. ANS in council speak means amount reasonably necessary for subsistence. A bycatch cap or threshold should account for humans. We have two objectives, right? The sustainability of these salmon populations and the sustainability of the human communities that depend on them. So I would encourage broader consideration of how both of those, both the ANS component and the return abundance component, could be wrapped up in a threshold determination, either above or below. The chum bycatch issue continues to draw the attention of fisheries advocates and to evoke much impassioned testimony from the residents of communities whose lives have been disrupted by the chum crash. Dr. Christopher Anderson with the University of Washington wanted to ensure that pursuing a cap on trawl bycatch would have the intended results. We see that these stocks are in trouble. We have the super well-intended impulse that we would really like to support them. To me, the first question you ask is, does reducing bycatch increase the fish in the rivers? And intuitively, that makes sense, but that should be based on evidence, and we should be saying science has something to say here about how big that effect is. That conclusion was also among the recommendations presented to the Council by the advisory panel, which is comprised of fishing industry interests and processors. In its report, the AP wrote, an impact analysis of western Alaska chum stocks is important to help answer the question of whether or not any of the suggested management measures will meet the purpose and need. The council agreed to move forward with the four possible management alternatives to reduce chum bycatch, each of which must now be subject to a federal impact analysis. That should be completed sometime in mid-2024, with final action by the council expected the following December. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Petersburg's Viking Swim Club took home dozens of medals from their meet in Sitka this weekend. They swam against Juno's Glacier Swim Club, the Sitka Barracudas, and the Ketchikan Killer Whales. Nineteen Vikings traveled to the meet. Altogether, they racked up 40 first-place finishes, 28 second-place finishes, and 17 third-place finishes. Scott Burt coaches the Vikings. He says he's extremely proud of the whole team. A majority of them improved on their personal best times at the meet. Bert says that's especially impressive since many of the team's swimmers are busy with other extracurriculars like volleyball and dance. But he says they're still giving it their all at practice. Uh, I could not be more proud of our swimmers. Despite all of those other diverse interests, which I encourage and, and applaud, they're still showing up for practice. You know? And their effort, he says, is paying dividends. At this weekend's meet, Ryder Deal ended up with eight first-place finishes. Bella Miller came in with five first-place finishes, and her sister, Tori Miller, had eight first-place finishes. And it was eight-year-old Carter Griss's first swim meet ever. He took home six gold medals. And then, Bert says, eighth-grader Lexi Tao really stole the show. Lexi Tao is spectacular. She ended up winning the whole thing. And every single time she swam, you know, most of the time, I think at the very end, she still continued to draw her, her personal best. The Vikings' success was evident during the last race of the tournament, the 50-meter freestyle. Just eight swimmers made it through the final heat, and six of them were Vikings. Bert gave a special shout-out to Lexi Tao and Hogan Eddy, who were chosen by their peers to be the Viking Swim Club's team captains. And they're providing great leadership for all of our swimmers, 
for example, at this last meet, helping the younger, newer swimmers, making sure that they knew what events in lanes and heats that they were in, and making sure that they made it to the blocks in time, and just encouraging them. The swim club will hold a time trial event at 5 p.m. today at the community pool, where the Viking swimmers will swim against their teammates. The swim club is seeking volunteers to help keep time for the events. Each year, many places in Alaska are seeing their first frosts come later and later. The longer growing season will, could allow Alaska farmers to grow crops that were once rare in Alaska, but other changes brought on by climate change will cause new farming challenges. Anna Kenny has the story. In October, fall gives way to winter across much of Alaska. At Calypso Farm, Tom Zimmer has just wrapped up for the season. We're up in Fairbanks. We've probably got six, seven inches of snow on the ground. In the barn he's calling from, there are bunches of dried flowers and white mesh bags suspended from the ceiling. We have everything harvested. Everything's in the root cellar. And you can see behind me uh, those paint bags uh, drying seeds. Zimmer and his wife have run their small organic farm since 2000. They're one of relatively few farms in Alaska. Historically, the state's cool temperatures and short growing seasons have allowed for hardy crops like carrots and cabbage. But not much else. That could change. Human caused climate change is bringing hotter summer days that linger later in the year. And that could allow Alaska farmers and gardeners to produce more diverse produce. But not everything thrives. This year, we had excellent green beans, amazing cauliflower. But other crops bolted. It was too hot. But on the nearby experiment farm at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, warming conditions have helped researcher Glenna Gannon grow some fruits and vegetables for the first time. We're successfully able to grow things like artichokes and field-grown tomatoes and peppers and corn um, here in Fairbanks now. I don't think 30 or even 10 years ago that would have been successful. At the farm, nine of the 10 latest first frosts on record have occurred since 2001. And according to university climate researcher Nancy Fresco, that pattern will likely continue. We're anticipating continued increases in the actual length of the growing season, but also in the cumulative heat across the growing season. Warm weather-loving crops like tomatoes and corn have been hard to grow in Alaska without the help of greenhouses. But now they have a better chance to ripen in the field. Even cold-tolerant species like Brussels sprouts may fare better. They take a relatively long time to mature, so farmers and gardeners in Alaska have risked losing their sprouts to frost and snow before they're ready to harvest. Theoretically, climate change could help. But climate models don't capture everything. There are some really important factors about what can grow um, that are particular to Alaska, that are challenging in Alaska, and that we haven't yet had a chance to model. Permafrost is one factor. It can affect soil temperature and moisture, and as it thaws, it can destabilize soils. Then there are the long hours of summer sun. Some crops just can't tolerate that much light. Even as atmospheric conditions become more favorable, farmers will still have to contend with those things. And Zimmer says he also worries that climate change will make weather more erratic. Yes, frost-free days are increasing, but the instability of the climate is making it probably more difficult to farm and Gannon at the experiment farm said that while warm weather crops are becoming more possible, they might not always be reliable. We might 
have the ability to have a much greater breadth of what we grow here. Um, but I still just want to plant the seed of caution that anyone who's going out to grow their garden or plant their farm, um, you know, they're still in Alaska. She said one of the best ways to promote resilient farming under climate change is to embrace a diversity of crops. In Juno, I'm Anna Canny. Alaska had its best ever cruise ship season this summer. Speaking on day one of the Alaska Travel Industry Association's annual convention in Fairbanks on Tuesday, ATIA President and CEO Jillian Simpson said there were over 1.6 million cruise ship passengers, up from under 1.2 million last year. We had a record-breaking year with the number of cruise ship passengers that came to Alaska. Looking at the broader tourism picture, Simpson said actual visitor numbers are still being finalized, but she shared some traffic indicators. She said the number of air travelers held steady at 1.9 million, but pointed to a caveat given this year's record cruise season. One-third of cruisers are cross-gulf cruisers, which means that one-third of those numbers taking a cruise are flying out of Anchorage or Fairbanks, and that is impacting those air numbers, which means that our independent travel was actually lower this year than what we experienced last year. Border crossings are another way of tracking Alaska visitation, and Simpson said the number jumped from 111,000 in 2022 to 127,000 this summer, a 15 percent increase. With Canada reducing the requirement for people to share their health information across the border, that definitely inspired more travel, and it was nice to see an uptick there. A final tourism metric, the number of people traveling to Alaska by ferry was down slightly compared to last year. Simpson also shared results of a tourism economic impact study conducted last year. She said it shows a major increase compared to the last time an analysis was done in 2017. And at that time that we measured it, uh, um, the price that people spent um, per person per trip to Alaska was just over $1,000. When we measured it again last year, that number rose by 40% to almost $1,500 per person. Simpson said that amounted to a direct visitor economic impact of $3.9 billion. She said that increases to $5.6 billion as the money moves through Alaska's economy. Simpson added that the analysis also found that tourism accounted for 43,000 direct jobs in the state in 2022. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.